0: What does this have to do with evangelism? Um, hopefully it will become clear. But one of the questions that arose a few weeks ago when we were talking about uh, God's, God's election, this predestination being the ground for why we evangelize, is it frees us from guilt and shame about if we mess it up or maybe we were the reason someone turned away, but if we know that God is the true saver of people, and that he has elected some from the beginning of time. and That as many as are appointed to eternal life will believe. It frees us from this. But then what do we do? What do we do when people don't believe? What do we do? That's part of what I'm trying to answer this morning with this. So, I'm going to pre- read to us from Matthew chapter 5 now. Seeing the crowds... Jesus, he went up on a mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And disciples there probably means the crowds. So sometimes in Scripture, disciples means the twelve, and sometimes it means everybody who was following Jesus. This is probably a reference to everybody who was following him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father, who is in heaven. Let's ask God for his help this morning. Father, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. In your name we pray. Amen. So, what does this have to do with evangelism? You. Probably got a little taste of it because the last part is, right, a light cannot be hidden if it's on a hill, right? city cannot be hidden if it's on a hill. Don't, you know, the old, hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine, right? Our favorite, not our favorite, but one of our favorite children's songs, right? And he says it, that Matthew puts these two things right together. Blessed are the Beatitudes, and then... We shine. And it's a very weird thing because here are the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor, the meek, the mourning, the hungering, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and then the last two, which seem not to fit to anything the persecuted and the reviled. Blessed are those. Don't hide your light. So, Matthew is putting these next to each other to show us that these two things are related. So you can basically think of the Beatitudes as what the Christian should look like. Right? We want to be blessed by God, and blessed are these people. Blessed are the meek, and the mourning, and the poor, and the persecuted. And you might think that this persecution thing is... Separate, kind of, like, all right, and then he talks about this other thing. But I think they're all related. And the question is, why would someone who is meek and mourning and poor in spirits and peacemaking and pure in heart and merciful be persecuted? That's a legitimate question, I think. It makes no sense, right? When you think of why people get persecuted, you don't think the meek, the mourning, the peacemaking, those are the ones who get persecuted. You tend to think the ones who get picked on are the ones who make a stink. They're mean. That's why they get persecuted. They're loud and obnoxious. If they would just close their mouths more often, they wouldn't be persecuted so much. But the opposite is actually true. And you can think of it, in any way you like but Jesus says here for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you well read the prophets right what do the prophets say what do they do what's their manner well they're meek they are mourning they are peacemaking but it usually doesn't look like anything that we would define as meek mourning or peacemaking because i'm just going to randomly do this i did not prepare a text Because I didn't want to be biased in what I chose for the text of a prophet. So here's Lamentations. Just a random part of the prophetic books that I just opened to. I have no idea what this is, but this is just a taste of a prophet and his meekness, his mourning, his peacemaking. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones, and he has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry out for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. Well, that meets some definitions that we just read. Meek, mourning, right? We're going to do it again, because I don't want you to think that it's just happenstance, that that's the kind of language that the prophet used. So here's blind flip. We're in Hosea. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah, and a net spread upon Tabor, and the revolters have gone deep into slaughter, and I will discipline all of them. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. And now, Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. One more time. Lest you think I'm just randomly getting to these sorts of things. Flip forward just a little bit here. Amos chapter 6. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Calna and see, and from there go down to Hamath the Great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Or is their territory greater than your territory? Or you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence? Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp, and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine and bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils. I mean, You, just, I could, you could just do this all morning. prophets the prophets that's who jesus says are meek merciful peacemaking persecuted the prophets we if if you took a poll two minutes ago and you included me a week ago before i had thought about this and been praying about this and you said give me some defining attributes of the prophets i don't think at the top of my list would have been meek Mourning, peacemaking. I wouldn't have listed the Beatitudes, right? Because you read this and you're like, that's not meek. (laughs) That's not meek, right? I know meekness. Meekness is not that. Whatever meekness is, it's not that. And yet Jesus says, right? Go back, Matthew 5, verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That this the beatitudes all of them together are a description of the prophets. Meek, poor in spirit, mourning, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, merciful, pure in heart, peacemaking. That's a prophet. Now, saying this makes me, and probably you, a little bit uneasy. Because we have a a very particular picture of meekness and mildness and gentleness. And we tend to think that if if we could just be a little bit less like the prophets, that people would like us. We tend to think if we could be a little bit less like the prophets, that the kingdom would be built. We tend to think if we would be a little bit less like the prophets, that the church would grow. A little bit less like the prophets, and things would go well for us. And Jesus says the definition of meekness, mourning, poor in spirit. If you want to know what it looks like, look at the prophets. Look at the prophets. I don't, I don't like it. I have been accused, uh, we'll say, my entire life, at least my entire adult life, of being mean. And to a large degree, people are right. I can be kind of mean. I can be stern. I can be unforgiving. And so they're right. And I have much to repent of. And I have been repenting of that sort of thing, that mean streak in me. But it's still there. I have to, I have to constantly tell myself, is this true or just mean? I have to ask myself that a lot. Is this helpful or mean? It, it might be helpful, but am I going to do it because I'm mean? Because I just kind of want to dig into somebody. But there's this other side of things. And the other side is a lot of what people accuse me of being mean about is just true. Just true. A lot of times, especially early on, my presentation was less than ideal, but a lot of people objected to me simply quoting scripture. I wouldn't say I was quoting scripture. I would just quote it. And they would say, that's not true. And these would be Christians. And I would go, it's in the book of James. What do you mean it's not true? It's right there. This is not difficult. And so a lot of times, the truth, the truth about God and the world and us who are in it, is not what we think it should be and not what we like to hear. And so when you think of salty stuff, you are the salt of the earth. When you think of sitting on a hill that cannot be hidden. When you think of light that you ought not put a bushel over. We tend to think that that's exactly what we should do. It's uncomfortable to be meek and mourning. Because what does it mean to be meek and mourning? Uh, I flipped open to the book of Lamentations, and it's interesting that that was where God had me land the first time. Lamentations is basically Jeremiah lamenting the message that he has to give to the people. It's so weighty what Jeremiah says in his book, Jeremiah, that he laments the message And when I read, I forget what chapter it was, chapter 2, I think, is what I was reading out of. He said, my bones are being crushed and I'm wasting away. He's like, the weight of the truth is destroying me. I can't handle talking to people about this stuff. That's meekness. That's poor in spirit. That's mourning. And when you actually do that, when you're actually honest about the hardness of God's word... People do not like that at all. And so they will persecute those who are meek and mild and mourning, poor in spirits. Because those who are meek, mild, mourning, poor in spirits are those who are honest about God's demands for the world and our failure to live up to them. They say, here is what God has said, and here is a thousand ways I have failed, and here are a thousand ways you have failed. And that's uncomfortable for everybody in the room. Nobody likes that. We were talking in Sunday school about a problem like this. um, And the fact that we don't like to be corrected and rebuked. But it's just the nature of who we are. Like We have sin constantly with us. And the marker of the Christian, the prophet, the blessed one, Is the meekness, the poorness, the mourning to just go, yes, that's what God has demanded. And yes, I have completely failed at it. People do not like to hear that. It doesn't matter how nicely you say God is going to send you to hell. Nobody likes to hear that. Nobody. And so what we are tempted to do is instead substitute in a worldly meekness, mildness, a non-prophet meekness, a non-prophetic mildness, a non-prophetic peacemaking. Because what we generally like as far as peacemaking is that nobody is upset. But the peacemaking that God describes in the whole of the Bible is peace with him. Peace with God. The peacemaking we're working for is not, first and foremost, peace with each other, although that's an effect of it. The peace that we are most working towards is peace with God. I'm going to show you this in one place. This is the book of Ephesians. <clears throat> This is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. For he himself, this is Jesus, for Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and this is Jew and Gentile. So Jesus, who is our peace, has made us, Jew and Gentile, one, and he has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create himself one new man in place of the two, and so thereby making peace. So the, the foundation of the peace that the Jew and Gentile get to experience is first peace this way. And the way we get peace this way is through meek, mourning, poor in spirits, going to God and saying, here is what you have said, here is what I have done. And I have nothing for you. And that has to be our, our, our prime thought. And so when you read some of the prophets, now I am going to cherry pick because I have things to say this morning. Um, when you read the prophets, you come across things... That are constantly. Oh. <laughs> I thought it was right there. Here we go. Amos chapter 7. So Amos is one of my favorite books. That's why the boy back there has named it. Amos chapter 7. Then Amos answered and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet. Nor a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. But the Lord took me from following the flock, and the Lord said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. A huge marker of the prophets of God is that many of them didn't want to be prophets. Have you ever thought about that? Moses at the burning bush? Don't send me. I can't even talk right. Right? Right? The same is true of many of the prophets. When Isaiah, we talked about Isaiah chapter 6 a little bit in Sunday school this morning. Chapter 6 of Isaiah is when he's taken him to the throne room and there's the seraphim and the cherubim hovering around crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And what happens? Isaiah says, I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. And at this point, he's already a prophet. He's like, I I have a bad mouth, and I live among people with bad mouths. And it takes God, sending an angel, to burn his mouth with a coal before God asks, who will go? And Isaiah finally says, here am I, send me. But right before that, he was like, I am undone. My eyes have seen the Lord of glory. I want nothing to do with this business over and over and over and again you see this it's not every single prophet that's like this but many of them are wanting to put a little bit of a bushel over their light wanting to hide their city on a hill wanting to say i don't like to be salty i don't like it i don't like it because what happens when you're salty What happens when you let your light shine? What actually happens? You're persecuted. Nobody likes a man who says, you should not have done that. God is displeased. And when God is displeased, his wrath will flame out and consume us. Nobody likes to say that. Nobody likes to hear that. Nobody likes to be the one to deliver that. So, The truth of the blessedness of the meek is the more meek you are, the more the world will hate you. The more peacemaking you are, the more you will be reviled. The more hungry for truth and righteousness you are, the more you will be despised. Every one of these will lead to mistreatment by those who despise the God of heaven. So this is about evangelism, Joe. Have a little something that's not so darn depressing. (laughs) Right? And here's the good thing. I knew, based on just content and God's providence, that I could easily flip to the prophetic books pretty much anywhere and land in a very challenging, difficult word. But then there are things like this. Isaiah 52. So, Isaiah, it's, it's in a couple of chunks, but you can generally think of the, the late 40s and 50s of Isaiah as being the encouraging word in Isaiah. And much of the rest of it is not encouraging. But here, here is the peacemaking aspect. So the meekness, the mourning, the hungering, All of those may be defined possibly by the hard words of the prophets. Meek, mourning, hungering, poor in spirit. The peacemaking aspect, though, you actually have to have something to offer that is not hard, right? And this was just a little bit of like world history, right? One of the reasons that World War II came about, one of the reasons, is because the after the end of World War I, because everyone was so angry with Germany, rightfully, they had done really awful, terrible things and had tried to take over the world, it was not good. And we defeated them. And then we pushed these austerity measures down on top of them that oppressed them to the point that they got angrier and angrier and angrier. And this guy named Hitler was able to just harness the anger of the people in Germany to launch World War II. Okay? That's part of the reason. That's not the whole thing. What happened at the end of World War II was we refused to make peace peaceable with Germany because we were so angry at them. Thankfully at the end of World War II, or at the end of World War I we did that. At the end of World War two, having learned from our mistake at the World Council that you know what, even though we whooped their butts and they're no longer a threat, we cannot crush them forever under the boot. We have to have a way for them to not be crushed for fifteen years and get angry. And so we have to build into our peace, not just total surrender, but also a way out for them. That they can survive. And the fruit of that is the fact that Germany today, I mean, there's lots of geopolitical things going on, but generally speaking, Germany today is thriving because we didn't crush them after World War II with our peace. And so we also have to include this. This is the second half. This, and it's, we tend to think that this is the only thing we should ever say to people, but the majority of what God says to people is hard. And then he says things like this. Awake! Awake! Put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall be no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord. You were sold for nothing... And you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, My people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore what have have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing. Their rulers will wail, declares the Lord, and continually all day my name is despised. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Who publishes peace. Who brings good news of happiness. Who publishes salvation. Who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift their voice, and together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. Now you have to ask, why would they be wasted? Because God wasted them. That's the judge. That's the, that's the meekness, that's the mourning. And in the end of peacemaking, the Lord has comforted his people, he has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Both things are necessary for peace. Lasting peace, true peace, right peace. The hard words of saying to them, stop fighting or we will crush you. Which is what we said to Hitler, right? Stop, or it will end badly for you. But then, after we defeated him and his armies, and the land was laid waste, destroyed, you look at pictures of the aftermath of World War II, and even World War I, but World War II, it's a pockmarked Apocalypse. It looks like the end of the world came. And it almost did. And then after, we said, There will be peace. There will be peace. And we won't crush you like we did the first time. We will allow a way for you to live. Rejoice. Rejoice. We're not going to wipe you off the face of the planet. You have been defeated, you have been shown your ways are wicked. Now lift up your drooping eyes to see Zion, the city of God, lighted on the hill, waiting for you. Now the thing is, before that can be said, you have to be meek, and you have to be poor, and you have to be hungry. And people don't like that. People don't like it. The people that finally find themselves also to be meek, meek and made humble by your words and by God's words. Who also are mourning because of God's words. Who cry out to him like Jeremiah in Lamentations, I'm broken. What is there for me? There is no hope for me. What am I supposed to do with the things you have told me? You go, God will save you if you're meek. You're weeping? God loves those who weep and are broken and have contrite spirits. He will save you. He will save you. He will save you and bring you into eternal glory. You will inherit the earth. The kingdom of heaven will be yours. But not until you're meek. Not until then. And so here is the way that we have to be salty, we have to be light, we have to shine. We have to give ourselves to being prophetic in the whole of it, not just in the parts of it that we like. And so we have to learn to like the things that God has done. And that is very difficult to do. It's very difficult to do. Because the Lord is in heaven and he does all that he pleases. And there's nothing that's ever happened on the face of the planet that's not his. He says, I kill and I race up. I make blind and I make lame. And so all the hard things, all the hard things, again, we're talking about this election, predestination, providence, truth of God. They're God's. One of the things that Job did right when he spoke of God in the tragedies that befell him, right? The destruction of all his property and livelihood, the destruction of all his children the breaking of his body through sores he says the lord kills and the lord the lord gives and the lord takes away blessed be the name of the lord the lord gives the lord takes away that is one of the hardest things to say and it's one of the hardest things to believe but if we can believe it if we do believe it if we try to believe it god will help us Because to believe that is to be meek and poor in spirit and mourn. It's to give over everything to God and say, I don't have a clue. I don't have a clue unless you tell me something. I don't know what pleases you. I don't know what doesn't please you. Help me. That's meekness. And it's true all the time, even in the hardest of the hard, the worst of the worst, the worst enemy, death. Death. We say, God, 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 God. And we say it like this. When our baby died... Two years ago. And we never got to know it. Wasn't old enough for us to even tell if it was a boy or a girl. And then when my wife almost bled out afterwards. And spent a night in the hospital and had to have a transfusion. And at first they sent me away from the ER because it was during the COVID shutdown. And they said, you can't come. And I got sent home. My wife was in the hospital alone, bleeding out. God. God did that. That is a hard, hard, hard thing. Years ago now, we had a foster son for two years. His name was Kagan. We loved him. He came to us when he was a year and a half. We had him for two years. And then at a meeting at the courthouse in January 2016, the judge said, he needs to be with his mom in three weeks. We're done here. Case is closed. God. When I would walk up to the top of the stairs, there would be an empty room at the end of the hallway that in the house we had bought so that we might adopt him. God. And a year later, after we'd moved to Bloomington, we got a phone call. Almost a year and two weeks, almost exactly later, after he left our home. And they said, hey, he's been taken back into the system. Will you come and take him again? And we had to say no. God. 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 Now... I say these things as though those were easy things. They're not easy things. They are not easy things to believe, think, say. And God has to help me all the time to believe that that could possibly be something that He did. There are times when I do not believe it, but it doesn't make it not true. And right there, right there, whatever that is for you, it is the same for everyone else in this world. Everyone has stuff like that. Every single person you run into has something like that. Where if you were to say to them, God, they would say to you, get out. And you would say, no, I'm telling you. Be meek about this, God. And they would say, you do not say that to me. God had nothing to do with what happened that day. And you would say, please believe God. And they get madder and madder. And then they say all kinds of evil things against you. And all you're trying to do, all you're trying to do is introduce a little taste of meekness to their lives. And they hate you for it. So, evangelism. After that sermon a couple weeks ago, um, Sarah and I were talking. And there's this reality that happens that is depressing. And it's we invite people and they say they're going to come and they don't come. Or we say what we think is the right thing and then they don't believe it anyway. Or we show meekness and humility and love and compassion towards someone and they reject it. Or we offer the truth of the gospel and they don't receive it. Or they visit for three weeks and then never come back. And it's hard. It's hard. Or they come for six months and then they disappear and stop talking to you. After hours and hours and hours with them. God. It is his world. It is not our world. We have not yet inherited the earth. And he does as he pleases. And that, if election, predestination, providence of God is really hard. It's really hard. But I am telling you here if we will humble ourselves under this, if we will. Give ourselves to the work of prophets. The light will not be hidden. Notice the language here. You are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. If we give ourselves to being the blessed of God, it will be light to the world. It doesn't mean it will be easy. And it doesn't mean that people will not despise us. And it doesn't mean that we will not be persecuted. And it doesn't mean that people will come and not like us and never return. And it doesn't mean we'll get really excited that the family with five kids came and sat down and then they never came back. And it doesn't mean all of those things. But it does mean our light won't be hidden. And God will be pleased with us. And it also means this. Ours is the kingdom of heaven. We will be comforted in this. When we say God and it's hard, He will actually help us. He will actually comfort us. We will inherit the earth. We will be satisfied. We will receive mercy. We will see God. And we will be called sons of God. That is our work in evangelism. What is true evangelism? What does it look like? Is it handing out tracts? Is it doing Christianity explored? Yes and no. Right. Those are, the, those are the outward things we're doing. But this is the real work. This is the real work of evangelism. And it is hard work. It is hard work. And it is blessed work. It is blessed work. And we, we can do it. Not because you are special or I am special or you have a hard work ethic and I have a hard work ethic. Because God is faithful. (laughs) I mean, he really does do what he says he will do. When he says blessed He means it. When he gives our rewards, they will be ours. When he says we cannot be hidden, he means it. And so we need to trust him in these things. In the hard, hard middle of things. And that, that is the hard work of evangelism. Not figuring out how to make a meal for a Wednesday night Bible study. Not figuring out what curriculum... Not figuring out how to get people in the door. Not a program. This. This is evangelism. This is what it is. Okay? Let's pray this morning, and then we're going to sing our final closing hymn. Go ahead and stand with me as I pray. Father, you are merciful.